The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. I imagine that many of you, if not all of you, you come with a variety of motivations to church. You're here because you are motivated by something, right? You got out of bed and you came here, you maybe dragged the kids along and you're here in church. Uh, maybe you think you should be here. Maybe you think it's the right thing to do. It's the Christian thing to do. Maybe it's something that you've just become accustomed to going to church your entire life. Sunday morning, you go to worship service. Most of you, uh, maybe even all of you, share this motivation that is this. You want to grow. You're here because there's something inside of you that you desire to improve. You want to grow spiritually in your relationship with God. There, you want to grow uh, through comfort. You You want comfort, you want encouragement, you want um, guidance in your life, you want conviction, you want God to speak to you, and so you come to church to grow. And this is a desire in yourself to find this rest and growth, and it's really good, whether it's personal or spiritual or relational, maybe you're here because you want to be connected in friendship with others. Well, over four years of Holy Cross, of weekly service and sermons, I'm happy to tell you that I'm finally going to give you the answer for how to do that. After four years, how we can grow. And so jot it down, write it down, you're going to learn today, how do we actually do that? And unfortunately, but actually it's quite fortunate as we look through this, but unfortunately this passage for us is, is our Mr. Miyagi, and we are Daniel LaRusso. Okay, you following with me? Karate Kid. And he's this, this young guy, he's picked on by the bullies, they know karate, he's new in town from California, and they pick on him, they beat him up, and Daniel's frustrated, and his, and his neighbor, Mr. Miyagi, uh, catches wind of this and wants to teach him, right? So Daniel says, teach me how to punch, teach me how to defend myself, and beat these guys up, and, and teach them that I'm not gonna, I can't be bullied. And Mr. Miyagi says, great, we can do that, but first, wax the car. You know, paint the fence, sand the floor. When am I going to learn how to punch? When am I going to learn how to defend myself? When am I going to learn how to do this? And he, Mr. Miyagi keeps putting him in his place, keeping giving all these, these tasks that are, you know, menial and meaningless and, and just mundane. He's wasting his time, and Daniel grows frustrated. 70% through the movie goes on, and we're like, what? He just grows in his frustration, and finally... He realizes that all of these acts were developing him into a very well-ready defense for attack, to defend himself, and to punch a guy appropriately. And so we see this maturation process happening with Daniel over time. There's no formula to change, isn't, is there? I mean, there's no formula to growth. And I think that's what we want. We go to church, or we, we go to a book, or we go to a seminar, and we say, here are the deficiencies in my life. Here's where I'm longing to grow. How do I do it? How do I grow? Where is the formula? Can someone tell me how to do it? How many steps? I don't care if there's 12 or 3 or 20. Just give me the steps so that I can grow. And the Bible never gives it to us, never lets us rest in just a formula for growth. But it does tell us of a maturation process, the way of growing from infancy to maturity in adulthood, spiritual 
adulthood. And we see this process, this maturation process, in the summary of these verses that Peter presents to us. And the first step in this process is to understand this wonderful thing that God uses the gospel to change our heart. And here is where it is. We're going to go through a few, this process. We're going to unfold this whole process of how to grow, how to change. He uses the gospel to change our heart. What do we say? What does he say here? He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love. Obedience to the truth. How do we grow? Obey the truth. Now this word is, this phrase is super important. Because Peter is telling us, how do we enter into this process of growing in our faith and maturing in our life? The answer is, obey the truth. Does that encourage you or discourage you? (laughs) Because probably everyone of you is like, ugh. Can we go back to like a step process? I mean, what? Because I've already failed at that. If If the way to grow is to obey the truth, I've already messed that up. How does a person change in their innermost being, I mean, really, right down to the core of who a person are, is and how they tick and how, how they grow and how they live life. How do we change? Obedience to the truth. And so it's important to, to ask, well, what does he mean by obey the truth? What does it mean? Okay, obey the, all the truth, like the whole Bible? Obey the whole Bible? Well, forget it. My heart is, is not there. If my heart if my heart being purified before God and blameless in His sight and accepted on Him it is based on me obeying the truth and obeying the Bible, then forget it. I need another way because this isn't going to work. I've already failed at that. What is the truth that Peter is speaking about? The truth is the gospel. The truth is the gospel. It's, in the New Testament scripture, it's identical to the message of the gospel. Look at just a few verses here. In verse Colossians, uh, Colossians 1.5, the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And in Ephesians chapter 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And in in James, of his own will, he brought you, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. By the word of truth, the gospel, we are made into a new person. We are made into a new creation. We are accepted in His sight. And so when Peter is telling us that we first need to be purified in our innermost being to change, our very nature, our very identity is purified by obeying the truth, he means that we are dramatically changed by our belief and rest in the gospel message. All scripture is called God's true word. But when it says, the Bible says something like this, when it talks about the truth, it's talking about the gospel. Jesus saves us. He suffered. He shed his blood. He sacrificed himself for our sins. And God raised him from the dead and glorified him. And we obey the gospel when our hope and faith rests in Jesus who bore our sins for us. We obey the gospel when we place our hope and trust for acceptance before God in the work of Jesus' righteousness, His substitute for us, the things we sing about and talk about this morning, that we come before God carrying ourselves, and we say, who can stand before God? But Jesus died for us. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve, and He's alive today, living in me. I believe in Him. I trust in Him. That is the truth. 
of God's word. And this is life-giving power. It changes a person in their innermost being. Peter says it purifies our soul. You know, it's not just an intellectual ascension. It's not just an intellectual belief. It's not just a change of behavior or morality. It isn't, I've purified my soul through becoming a better person. God is talking about a change in our overall identity that only He can do by His power. The Apostle Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Power of God to change who we are in our innermost being is the gospel. If we fail to call on Jesus and to rest in his work for us, then we disobey the gospel. And no amount of moral or behavioral change, even if it's obedience to God's word, can we be born again to a living hope. Now, this is kind of startling. Listen to this. Both, there's moral people. We know who these people are, right? There's moral people, people that are good people, people that we would want to do business with, that we'd want to have become friends with, that we'd want to live next to. They're good people. They do good things. They have a good moral compass. And then there's immoral people. We know who these people are, right? It's the opposite. These are people that, you know, you don't want your kids to, to hang out with. You know, these are, these are people that you don't want to work with and do business with. These are people who, the fruit of their immorality is obvious. They're just not great people. But both moral people and immoral people can be just as far away from God. A person who follows the commands of Scripture and loves their neighbor and goes to church and tithes to the church and is honest at work yet does not rest in Jesus and His work for them and for their sins is no closer to God than an atheist. What? This is the truth of the Bible. This is what Peter is saying. That we, we put people in two different camps. There's moral people and immoral people, and these moral people, they're good, they're doing good, and they're, they're closer to God. Peter is saying there's something that happens in our innermost being that happens as a work of God in us, an act of God's grace in us to change who we are. And someone who does not rest in this truth of Jesus' work for them is just as far away from God as an atheist is. Why? Because before we trust, before we trust in Jesus as a Savior, everything in us is geared towards a self-salvation. Everything in us before Jesus is geared towards a works-based salvation. The atheist and the good moral person they look different on the outside, but the condition of their soul is exactly the same. They're still trusting in themselves, or they're saying, we don't need a salvation, we don't need a Savior. They're opposed to the idea that we need a substitute for our sins, that we need someone to save us from ourselves. And so the moral person continues to work to save themselves, to do good, and they look before God and they say, I hope that God is pleased with my efforts. I hope that my good outweighs the bad. And the atheist says, we don't need salvation. We're not on a bad side. There is no bad side. We don't need this atonement. We don't need a substitute. We're fine. And so both are geared towards a self-salvation. But the Bible says this, when you believe in the gospel, a new life comes into your being. Your heart begins to operate in a new way. 
It operates on a whole new system of identity and morality. And the whole, your whole life is geared towards something else. The reason and the basis of your whole life is now not centered on yourself, but it's now centered on what God has done for you in Jesus. The reason and basis of our whole life is based on the record of Christ and his character imputed to us. We become rich. We become righteous because of his righteousness. Our hope, our self-esteem, our confidence, our joy, everything is based on his record and his character. This is what it means to believe in the gospel. The Bible calls us being born again. Peter says, you've been made new. God has done this in you. You've been purified by believing in the gospel that is God's power to your life. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God that was preached to you. Peter's saying, I told you about this. You heard of it and you believed of it. And because of that belief, you've been made new. You're a new creation. And you couldn't do this yourself, but God did this in you. You're a Christian. You're born again. And your soul has been purified. Good news, right? Good news to them. Of course it is. But it doesn't stop there. You know, remember, we're talking about this process. Peter is wanting to encourage his friends and us together that there is this process of maturing. And it begins with God changing our heart. How it works. The very basis and core of who we are. And then he goes on to address this. That in that process as it grows, as we grow, a changed heart results in moral change. The power of the gospel brings change. And what is the, what is the moral change that Peter addresses? We, we read them in here. We talked about it this morning. One is the exercise of love. And it's the end of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. This is an interesting group of sins, isn't it? It's not one that I would pick. If I was writing to a church and, and they were asking, how do we grow? What, what should we get rid of? This is the grouping of sins that he talks about. Malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander. Are these the, are these the things that we think about when we think of the immoral person? You know, the, the moral or the immoral person, the, the immoral person, I mean, that's the, that's the real nasty, right? I mean, the, the, the adulterer, the, the murderer, the fornicator, uh, you know, the, 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 the licentious and debaucherous lifestyle, the drunkenness. I mean, this is the immoral person, but Peter says malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, talking bad about people and, and not loving those whom God has called you to live life with. I think there's a good reason why he addresses these specific sins, and here it is. Because the gospel is meant to be lived out in the context of community, and all these sins are community killers. And these qualities are found in a person who does not truly know how to apply the gospel. These sins are are present in the life of a person who is not maturing in the gospel. There is an immaturity. They're like children, as Peter says. Do you know your sins are forgiven? We just went through the beauty of the gospel. You know, this first part, that the gospel changes our life. Do you know that by believing in God's work for you in Jesus Christ, that you're forgiven, that you're accepted, that you have favor with God, that you are seen as righteous before God, that you're right before Him? You stand not condemned. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe 
that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Then why is there a lack of love in your life? Then why is there malice? Why is there pretending and performing and hypocrisy? And why is there envy? Why is there slander? Why do you talk bad about people? Why do you look at what people have and desire it for yourself? Why do you find your self-esteem in how people view you? Why do you try to perform for others so that they will like you? Why, when someone hurts you, does it go to your head and you become crippled by condemnation of others? Why do you seek so much to please other people in your life? That's what Peter's saying. Why is it so hard for you to forgive when you are hurt? You just told me that you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that you're accepted because of Christ, that you're a new creation, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, that you are good with God. And if everything in your life goes away, you have joy. You just told me that. Emphatically, I asked you ten times and you said, yes, that's me. Then why is there a lack of love? That's what Peter is saying. Peter is showing us how to mature in our faith, how to grow in the gospel, how to believe it in our life, and how to apply it in every area, and how so much we are still like baby Christians when it comes to knowing the gospel. The baby Christian has this remnant of this self-salvation. You know you're a baby Christian when you're overly sensitive to criticism. That the thought that someone could think ill of you just locks you up, cripples your heart. You know you're a baby Christian when you have a difficult time confessing and repenting of sins. That when a sin is exposed, you do everything in your power to deflect it, to ignore it, to pretend that it's not as bad as it really is. You have such a hard time admitting your guilt and saying, I failed forgive me. You're defensive when you're accused and insecure by how people perceive you. You do not ultimately know that you are accepted by God because of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I'm with you, okay? I am, I am in this with you. On this process of like maturing in our faith and growing and recognizing our immaturity and how childlike we are or childish we are in our faith. Do people need to notice you when you walk in a room? Do peop- does your self-esteem ride on your performance at work and your accolades and how much you make on what you drive or what you don't drive or how many people like your Instagram post? I mean, how much is wrapped up in your heart? How much of your heart needs that from other people? But I wasn't invited, but I wasn't encouraged, but I wasn't affirmed, I wasn't... And then you just think about this person all day long. How dare they? How dare she or he? Why do we do this? Because we're still babies. And Peter is calling that out. He says, there's a remnant of your self-salvation. You think you 
believe in the gospel and you're accepted because of Jesus' work in your life, but you're still a baby. Isn't this fascinating? When we think of what a baby Christian is, it's someone who doesn't know much, you know, doesn't know where to find stuff in the Bible. But do you know what Peter says? To be a baby Christian is to not know the gospel truth and how it applies to our life. And when you think, wow, we're all babies. We're all babies. You cannot grow from, from infancy in, in your faith until you truly know that nothing of your character or record can remove you from God's love. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you cannot grow in your faith. You cannot say, I'm growing in my faith. I'm, I'm, I'm becoming more like Jesus until you get it right that your record and your character is not the basis of God's acceptance for you. Do you absolutely and utterly rely on the death of Jesus as your hope and acceptance before God? In Christ, you are accepted by God. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. In Christ, you have been given a new identity. I don't think you believe it. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. Then, do you believe me? Then love one another from an earnest and pure heart. Put away malice. Put away deceit. Put away hypocrisy and envy and slander. Stop talking bad about others. Stop using people for what they can offer you. Stop letting hate grow in your heart for others. Stop acting like you are better than you really are so that others will like you more. Stop wanting others, wanting what others have so that you can be seen as important in their eyes. Stop comparing yourself to the success of others. Stop wasting your money on things that make you look like you're more important than you truly are. These lists of sins exist in our life because we do not believe the gospel. Peter surprises us with this list, but it is so good. It is so important. We do not believe that God is in control in our life, and so we control every minutia, every detail, every relationship. Every time someone gets in our way, we are aggressive toward them because they are ruining our life. We do not believe that God is glorious, and so we seek our approval in others. We do not believe that God is good, and so we are often unsatisfied with what we have and are always seen, seen, seeking greener pastures. We do not believe that God is gracious, and so we tra- take criticism to heart, and we take our success to our head. We become proud when we win. We become dejected and beat up when we lose. Instead, Peter shows us three ways to love. He shows us what this love looks like. He says love in three ways. Sincere, brotherly, and earnest. What's the point? What's the point here? The point is this kind of love is different than how the world loves. All of this is in the context of this greater theme that we've talked about in the book of 1 Peter. That we are exiles. By, by our new identity in Christ, we are exiles and we should not be surprised when we are further marginalized in a culture that is ungodly and does not know God or love him and now Peter's saying how do you live in the midst of them how do you live as utterly different people you want to know how to live differently among those who don't know God love people differently you know how the world loves the world loves 
with a consumeristic kind of love. It's a kind of love that is based on what someone else can do for you. The word instead should not be love, but really it's lust. Sexual lust is, is a disguised love, but it, it's fake because it's based on an exchange. It's based on what someone can do for us. It's a, in a consumer relationship. Think about this. You relate to a vendor, and you have a relationship as long as that vendor is giving you a product at a good price. And as soon as that product becomes undesirable, and as soon as the price changes and goes up, you go to a different vendor. That's lust. That's how it works out in a sexual relationship. As long as this is great, as long as it's working for me, then it's awesome. I love you. But as soon as that changes, the price or the benefit, what it costs me, then I'm going to move on to the next one. So in a consumer relationship, we have a relationship with another person as long as that person continues to give me the product at the price that I want. You know, I dumped Comcast and went with DirecTV. I dumped Sprint and went with Verizon. And I sleep fine at night. This is a consumer relationship. It isn't love. And as soon as those companies stop pleasing me, I'll go to a different one. I'll move on to something else without losing sleep. A consumer relationship says, if you stop meeting my needs, I'm out of here. And Peter says, when Christians relate to one another in this way, they become indistinguishable from an ungodly culture. We're no different. In a consumer relationship, you're always marketing yourself. Isn't that true? When you want something from someone, you're always marketing yourself. I'm fun. I'm laid back. I'm resourceful. I'm good looking. I'm rich. I'm connected. I know people. Be my friend. And there's more than, more than enough people willing to be our friend. Yeah, I like that. I want to be around you for what it does to me. And so in order to be in a healthy relationship, we have to market ourselves. It's exhausting. We have to continually prove to people You should be around me. Many look for a church the way that we shop for jeans, hoping to find a comfortable fit at a low cost. That's how we often find community at a church. I like the community here. It's pleasing to me. It's comfortable. It allows me to to be comfortable, and, and, and I'm finding friends, and it doesn't cost much for me. I can give very little, if anything at all. And I still get to benefit from that. But as soon as the cost increases and you are called to sacrifice, to give your life, you'll find a different church, a different place that costs less and is just as comfortable. Or let's say it stops being comfortable and your pastor yells at you every week. I'm going to go to a place that makes me feel better about myself. Instead, the gospel invites us into a committed community of people bound together by the love of Jesus and, and growing into maturity through a faithful pursuit of Jesus. The gospel community matters and is so connected to how we grow as God's people. Christian community cannot sustain our desire for Christian community. This is something weird. You can't get Christian community by pursuing Christian community. This is really weird. You can't get better at being a a great, healthy community by focusing all day long on how to be a better community. Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 
This is a demanding command meant to create a distinct community of people that love differently. And he says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. Peter is saying, since you have been purified by love, then love. Since God has done a work in you and has changed you, then love. Since you have received love, then love. Since you have been accepted, then accept. Since God has, for, has been, has been um, patient and slow to anger, then you do the same. It is the gospel truth alone that can rid our selfish desires of all, from all of these things. It is only the gospel and pursuing the word of God and growing in the word of God, the gospel, applying it to our relationships when someone wrongs us, when a relationship becomes uncomfortable, when it becomes costly. Applying the gospel is the only thing that can break the cycle of this selfish pattern of living life just from one group to the next, always bouncing to the more comfortable relationship. And this isn't just related to church community. I don't want to make it about that. It's about how we relate to one another as God's connected people. The Christians must be utterly different from the world in how we view sex and money and power, but most also be utterly different in how we treat each other. This is the bulk of Peter's message. This is where he gets. He goes in nice. He talks about the gospel and he hits hard. And then he lands really hard. He's at 30,000 feet. He slams on the brake and he hits the runway. And so I'm going to do the same, okay? Here's where Peter finishes. Moral change is an ongoing work. Faith liberates us from sin, from seeking the approval of others. Faith liberates us from finding our identity and economic position. Faith frees us. And Peter says, when you become a Christian, you're a baby. And some of you have been a Christian for many years, but you're still a baby because you have failed to live out the gospel and apply it to your life and your relationships every day. You believe the gospel, as you have told me, but you have not learned the skill of regular communion with God. And up to this point, this passage and my approach has been uh, to humble us. I hope you see that. It's been to, to humble us. No one likes being called a baby, right? No one likes, like, you're such a baby, Grow up already. Like, no one likes to hear that. It's meant to humble us. It's meant to convict us. But if we have any remnant of our morality or behavior or thoughts that Peter addresses, we are spiritual infants. If we see these characteristics, this cycle of sin in our life, then we are spiritual babies We need to see these things. We need to confess of them. We need to repent of them. We need to trust in the gospel that we confess. And here's our great hope. We do this as people with great hope. The gospel breaks the cycle of sin so that we could put away childish things and grow into maturity. And if we want to apply the gospel, we need need nourishment. Peter uses this analogy of food, of milk, of growing up. And like babies, we need to crave and long for this spiritual food, this nourishment to bring us up to adulthood. And you know what it is? He doesn't give the opposite of, he doesn't say, instead of being malicious, you know, be kind. Instead of being deceitful, be honest. Instead of being slanderous, be truthful. He doesn't give the opposite of these sins. He says, instead of being these things, pursue the Word of God. Feed greatly on the Word of God. Long for it and crave it for nourishment of your life into maturity that leads to salvation, like newborn infants. When we believe the gospel, we will believe that God is good and that he gives us what we need 
and what he, we have is best for us. He'll give us what is best for us. He'll give us what he needs. He loves us like a good father. And Peter knows that we can't break this cycle all at once, right? Many of us desire that. Okay, God, I've got it. I'm ready. Just get rid of it all. Break the cycle of sin in my life so that I'm spiritually mature. And we know that this doesn't happen in this life. Peter knows that. Our progress towards maturity at times seems very slow. It often seems uh, like there's, there's a lack of joy in the process. It's painful at times. We wonder, am I really growing at all? Think of your life last year. Are you, do you feel like more spiritually mature today than you were a year ago? for instance. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. What's been a hindrance there? Peter knows, he understands that this process takes a lifetime, but he encourages us and he says, rehearse the gospel in your life every day and you will mature in a spiritual maturity. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Like, you know, Lay's potato chips, I bet you can't eat just one. They owe royalties to Peter and the Holy Spirit, in fact, for this word. Because, actually, Isaiah. Isaiah is quoting this. Taste and see. Because when you see the good of the gospel, and how it purifies your heart, and how it makes you love, and it changes you, your morality, you'll enjoy it, you'll, you'll be satisfied by that spiritual milk, and you'll keep coming back to it. You will crave it. Peter says, taste it. Taste and see how good it is. Nourish yourself in this. Rehearse the gospel until, when, how long? Until you grow into the maturity of the hope in which you've been called. Salvation. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What, when is the Christian done applying the gospel to their life and growing into maturity? Never. <laughs> this is the one thing, even when we die, death cannot break the cycle of the gospel change. Death will not break the cycle of needing to know and love and taste that the gospel is good. It will outlast, the gospel will outlast even death because it is our everlasting hope. Be on this journey. Be in this process. It isn't a one or the other. It isn't like, why am I not growing? I'm not perfect. I thought that Jesus loved me. I thought that I loved him. I still have sins. Peter's saying, that's good. Recognize those things. Confess of them, repent of them, apply the gospel truth, crave the spiritual milk, and wake up the next morning and see that God's mercies are new, and do it again, and you will be so glad. Let's pray.